Welcome to the Breakfast Leadership Show, where we interview global thought leaders on business, leadership, and life. Here's your host, keynote speaker, best-selling author, and chief burnout officer of the Breakfast Leadership Network, Michael Levitt. Welcome back. I've got Jason Reichel on the line. Jason, how are you? Good. Very good. How are you? Good, good, good. I'm looking forward to this conversation. You've got an amazing background. You've done a lot of different things and you're doing some amazing thing now. But So I want you to share real quick with the audience a little bit about your backstory and then we'll dive into your CRO role and eighth day stuff and everything else you're doing. Yeah, amazing. So, um, hi, my name is Jason Reichel. Thank you for joining me uh, for breakfast this morning. Um, so, one thing that we're that you know about my background that it kind of all culminates from is I'm a musician by training, um, and I was belong to the punk rock community. So, uh, punk rock is all about building community and uplifting one another. And as I grew up and went and studied different forms of things like advertising and got eventually into the tech sector here in San Francisco, um, I never kind of lost that idea that we are kind of all in this together and that we should be building one another up as we build our businesses. And so I created a company called Go Nimbly, where I was the CEO for six years, still very much going on. I'm on the board of directors there. And what they do is they invented something called revenue operations, which is all over the internet. When we started, there were zero job uh, titles. Now there are over 500 job titles a month with that title. Uh, And it's about the integration between sales marketing and customer success and making sure that you're breaking down silos and really building not a a, a competitive place within your organization, but a collaborative place in your organization. Um, And while I was there, I did a lot of speaking engagements and got really passionate on how to build teams successfully. Uh, That led me to... uh, continuing my career as a CRO of a company called Breadcrumbs. And at Breadcrumbs, what we focused on is operationalizing what people are doing. One of the things I really believe that buyers want, people who are buying your products, is they want you to know them. They want a personalized experience. Things like Instagram and B2C culture uh, dictate that. And we don't really do that in B2B. So uh, Breadcrumbs is bringing those tools there so that you can see exactly what your users are doing and score them and make sure that you're answering them where they are and meeting them operationally. While that is really cool and operationalizing tech is a real big passion of mine, uh, I also missed uh, building really large teams. I've managed, you know, over 750 people in my career. I was also the head of services for a large enterprise uh, consultancy that was purchased by IBM. Uh, and so I really missed building people up. So I created this company called EighthDay.io. You can go to the website, EighthDay.io. And what we focus on there is teaching people how to integrate their work and life um, and really find fulfillment and prioritize what they're focused on and what they want to accomplish with their life. As I said, you've got a, a very diverse and amazing background. Thank and you. I, while there's there's some things that are different, I see some themes that you know, flow through it and from the siloed situation at work, which I think a lot of people have been dealing with that type of work environment for a long time, where even in an open office format, they still feel siloed because there isn't the integration uh, with team members uh, and everything seems to be disjointed. Communications are not strong in many organizations and people are lost wondering, okay, what are we doing and who's doing what? And 
And of course, you throw in the pandemic that amplified it in many organizations because they literally weren't in the same building anymore. They were scattered across the globe, depending on where people happen to be and really created a lot of problems. And it ties into the work that you're doing with eight day because people go to work and they also are struggling with work sometimes and it's long hours and of course this pandemic has made that even worse in in many cases and they're trying to balance which you said in the pre-show and i 100 percent agree with you there's no such thing as work-life balance i i use the analogy it's like trying to balance an egg it just is going to it's going to topple it just doesn't work that way we are one being we're not two people um we're we're one and we do things for vocation for revenue generation for income to be able to do things in life that we like to do well sometimes people do the work thing to make the money to do the things we like to do and then we don't do them Okay. Right. You know, and there's a lot of reasons. So uh, let's, let's dive into the work there a little bit. So obviously it's, it's a passion thing for yours as well, because, you know, the work that you do as CRO uh, is, you know, that is fulfilling for sure. And I'm sure keeps you pretty productive and eats up a good chunk of your time. But for you to take the time and do this other work definitely demonstrates that, you know, this is an important thing for you. Absolutely. Uh, Very important. You know, one of the things that I find that we, my perfect analogy is, so my my entire philosophy, we're helping people in two things. If you're building a company and you call your people resources, you are cementing the idea that there is a difference between a person and the person doing the work. And I think that since we have all felt that way while we're working within companies, even, you know, as an executive of a company, sometimes you end up feeling like a resource. Um, what ends up happening is you can't really integrate those two pieces of yourself so that everything that you're doing is, is, is feeding one another. So I'm a musician. I do art. Um, I'm a comedian. I do stand up. I, uh, do sketch comedy and very early on in my career, I had bosses be like, how are you going to focus on your job and really make uh, uh, inroads here if you're doing all of this other stuff? And my answer to them was, it's only because I'm doing all this other stuff that I'm able to be successful and do this job here. From being in a band, I learned the discipline of practice and, 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 and running scales. From being a comedian, I learned about how to be on my feet and, and really make the best out of any situation and control a conversation. And, you know, from being an artist, I learned how to find detail and, and how to actually communicate things in a way that is representational, not exactly the, the thing, right? Which allowed me to build narratives very easily and, and really move forward and things like advertising and other places in marketing that have been successful. So for, for me, uh, that was kind of the clue. And when I would ask my other colleagues, what did you do on the weekend? Or what did you do this week? Their answer was always, well, I just watched TV or I just hung out and took it easy. Now there's nothing wrong with downtime, but I think a lot of that comes from the fact that we don't know what to do with our downtime to further our career ambitions or how to have our career ambitions further what we like to do on our downtime, right? And and so it feels to be this big block that's happening in society. And so then when you look at them, I always go, Okay, your fulfillment level uh, and is 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 down, and then what they'll usually tell me is that they feel this tension, and a tension, for the lack of a better word, is just from 
where we are to where we want to be and the gap in between is the tension. And tensions are great. They're opportunities for us to really explore. Now, most people, and this is one of my favorite tensions that come to me and I work with, usually are in a new managerial position because I managed as an executive, a lot of managers. And they say, hey, I feel this tension because I feel myself turning into the asshole boss that I always hated. I feel myself uh, micromanaging or I feel myself kind of writing people because they're not getting stuff done on time. And so I feel this tension because I don't want to be that person, but I don't know how to get my goals and hit my audacious goals, right? That I have out there as an executive or, or a new manager uh, without kind of replaying the experiences I have. And so that came up, that made me create a methodology that is around experiences. If you build yourself from the experiences you know, you'll only probably end up slightly better than those experiences themselves. So my perfect analogy is, yes, you had a terrible boss. That's your experience. So now you're a slightly better terrible boss. Uh, that's a tension that most people will run into as they become a manager. And the reason for that is because they really lack the vision and belief system behind what it looks like. They don't know what an ideal boss would look like because all they've ever run from is what they don't want to be, not what they want to be, right? And they have core beliefs that in order to get things done, you have to behave like a certain way, treat your people like resources, micromanage them, and so on. And then come the techniques, the management techniques on how to run a meeting and all these kind of more soft or, or you know, uh, technique skills that you might have around strategy. But most people will, will go onto Google and type like, how do I run a meeting like a boss? And they won't understand that they lack the vision or belief behind those things. And ultimately, are just going to be a slightly better, uh, slightly better bad boss, right? And nobody really wants to be slightly better than the terrible experience they had. And when you confront those people um, with that truth, what they usually will say, well, I used to have it so hard in my day. Um, and this is a common thing that you hear from a lot of people like, we didn't have XYZ. The company I worked for was more terrible. It's like, great, that's all fine and dandy, but that's not what you're after, right? And so as long as you make those kind of excuses, which I think all of us have in our life, you're going to feel this big disconnect between where you want to be and the fulfillment that you feel and ultimately um, what you're achieving, right? Um, and it's always going to be attention. And I've had CEOs come to me for coaching and I've worked with them and they're achieving very big things, but they feel terrible about it. When I worked at GoNimbly, we worked with very large SaaS companies. And I'd be talking to a CEO who now ran a $100 million company, and they'd be lamenting about how great it was when they were less than a million dollar company, how everyone was on board and everybody believed in the vision and da 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 because they started taking advice on what it looked like to be a $100 million company because they didn't know how to do it because they didn't have the vision. They didn't have the belief system put in place for themselves. And they just started doing what they thought was right. And then that's where the tensions start to arise. And so being punk rock and, and learning for myself on how to create and model my own behaviors, I, I've been able to successfully teach people these techniques. Uh, they're not mystical, right? They're, they're true. A vision as much as, you know, uh, counterculture or hippie culture has kind of taken that away. It's truly something that we can achieve and that we can see in the future, right? And so it needs to be actually achievable. And you need to actually write that down and create a vision statement for yourself. And then you need to assess your beliefs that are actually negative, that are keeping you from that vision. And then you can apply all the techniques and you'll see a real boon. And that to me is like where we try to push people and, and what I believe in from a management style. The belief side of things is critically important because our behaviors or beliefs or thought patterns, all of that, we bring that baggage, for lack of a better term, from our previous experiences. And you know, the example you gave is like, okay, well, I'm going to do something just a little bit better. 
And when you do that, it's like, okay, well, it's really not moving the needle much. You're just kind of doing the same thing and you've, you know, maybe, you know, applied a different coat of paint or something like that. And I, I use this example a lot when I talk with organizations and, and management styles and things like that. And it goes back two decades when I worked for a startup internet market research firm. And it was my first day there. I worked in the support department. I was in my cubicle and my boss came by my cubicle at 3.32 p.m. I remember this time specifically because he came by and he says, okay, I want to lay down the rules to you know, what we're going to do here uh, as an employee and, and how you're going to work and all of that. And I'm thinking, oh boy, here we go. Here comes you know, how I'm going to be basically a puppet and all of that. And he just leaned in, he looked at me and he said, I don't care when you get here. I don't care when you go home. As long as you get your job done, we're good. I'm here Mondays, Thursdays, and Fridays, Tuesdays and Wednesdays. I'm on the East Coast. Here's my cell number. Here's my pager number. I'll let you know how old that was back then. Um, <laughs> yeah. He did have a cell, but he's also we still had the pagers too, the the BlackBerry or the Rim pagers that would vibrate in the middle of the night and fall behind our uh, our nightstand. You know that, those kind of things. Yep. And he said, "Whatever you need, let me know." to do your job well and you do it. And it was a startup organization and you know all about those. They're bumpy at the beginning because literally there's, you, know, you got to do something. Oh, we don't need, we don't have that. Okay. We need to acquire that. Okay. Get that rolled out and all that. So it was a lot of learning on the fly type of things, but the environment that he established for that allowed for creativity. And then of course, mm-hmm. as they grew, that tension that you mentioned started to show up and there's that internal dialogue and sometimes internal fighting of, we know we need to grow and we have to do some things differently in order to be there. But we like being like the example you gave earlier as well. We like being this version of it, but we can't be this version necessarily to do this. But it doesn't mean you have to throw out the baby with the bathwater, though. There's still some elements and themes. And again, that's, you know, the vision you know, side of things and writing that down. It's not just a poster in the boardroom. It has to be a living, breathing entity that you know and believe in because that's how you're going to operate when you go forward. Yeah, your executives or your bosses can't write your vision, right? Uh, you have to have a vision for yourself. You know, one of the things that I always kind of settle on that is, is is startling is, you know, the human truth is that we're modelers. We model the behaviors of others. And we never stop to go, what if I modeled the behavior of who I want to be versus what is around me? Um, and I think that is really core to my philosophy is that uh, it can feel very liberating to embrace your most authentic self. And I mean these words 100% truly to what they actually mean in the dictionary, to embrace your authentic self and use your authentic gifts in order to build the environment that you want to be in. And what I have seen by training people uh, and working alongside them and managing them is that the results that they bring to the table for their bosses, for their managers, for their companies, make them in the top 10% of the performers within that team. And because they've gone through a more methodical approach to it, a more intentional approach, they can then help train others and become managers that people want to follow regardless of if they have that title. And, you know, leadership and management, as you know, and I, you know, I, you know, I, I follow you and what you do is not about hierarchy or authority. It's about people's willingness to want to follow someone and want to work alongside them to accomplish great things. And I think that, you know, that's something that we are 
in the tech world. Uh, we say that we want innovation. We say we want these really you know, magnetic people within the team, but then we're very quick to put developers into a developer box or business people into a business box or so on and so on until your organization is, you know, we're just building the next financial companies, you know, 25 years from now. Um, and that is not why I think many people get into the innovation field that I'm in. And, and, you know, many people are innovating within their own, you know, legacy uh, areas. But ultimately, I think that's something that we have to consider, which is you're going to model the behavior. Why not model what you want versus uh, someone that you don't want to be like? That negative belief system right there is I don't want to be like Jason Reichel. I don't want to be like Michael. You know, those kind of things are already negative beliefs because you are analyzing them and you're interpreting them and your modifier on success is going to be very limited. Insanely limited. And I love the fact you mentioned your know, model of behavior you want to have, you know, walk the walk, be, be that, you know, from a workplace culture type of situation. It's like, this is how we're going to behave. This is how we're going to do things. And we're not going to be sending emails at all night and weekend, unless it's a true major issue and it's not an emergency. I always tell people it's like emergencies should be reserved for hospitals because they have the name emergency on their building and nowhere else does. Priority, urgent, of course, but you know, let's leave emergency to healthcare if we can. But one one thing too, you know, as we wrap up, I'm I'm curious in in all the work that you're doing, um, how the pandemic has impacted things. Um, what are some things? And I'm and I know you know from from your background and the work that you've done, you're probably a lot more geared for success and navigating through something like this than, than other organizations. And, and the work that you do has probably guided a lot of people to navigate through these uh, ever-changing times. But I'd be curious to see some of the examples of some of the things you've been doing uh, since the yeah. pandemic. Yeah, I mean, the truth of the matter is people's resiliency during the pandemic has really been tested. And resiliency is not a, not a thing I really used to talk about. Um, you know, People are driven by lots of things, by money, by ambition, by success, by status. These are ambi these are things that people are driven by. But what we don't really talk about is what is the gasoline of any of your ambitions and it's resilience. Um, and when we look at resilience, what so many people are, are, are falling into, and, and I have to say this happened on my own leadership teams and both tech companies I, I work with, um, is they lose sight of the fact that being a leader is a privilege. Um, being someone's mentor is a privilege. And it, and we are all facing the same situation here. And I'm not saying that mental health isn't important, but when you take a role and responsibility of being a leader within a team, you have chosen to challenge your resilience every single day to provide for other people. And I think that that really hard truth is, is really hard for people to accept um, and to live up to. And so when I really think about resilience, what I think about is that you have to learn how to manage your energy. And, and your energy is the ability to get up and do your job as you can do your job every single day. And so what a lot of us do, and, and this is a thing I talk about a lot, is in the tech world, you have two types of people. You have a perfectionist and you have a procrastinator. A perfectionist will go really hard 
for about a week on something, rechange your whole schedule, put new meetings on everyone's calendars, create burnout for everyone else. You saw this during the beginning of the pandemic. Everyone was doing a happy hour every day. We need to keep our team engaged. Da, 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 da. And then they burn themselves out on that because they wanted to be the best company in the world. And then they stopped doing it for nine months, which my company was guilty of, right? Um, or you procrastinate. Well, this is not going to last that long. We're going to get right back to normal. And these are all behaviors that lead to just simply um, a lack of energy to actually carry on with what the business needs. Um, one of the big things that the pandemic had taught me is that you know, for tech companies, because I work so closely with most tech companies, uh, their net new business was down by 60%. And so they had to grow within their existing business mo- uh, or organizations that they work with today to continue to grow. And when I talk about resilience with them, these are things like, okay, what are we going to prioritize over this, over that? So even overstatements is a a technique that I really uh, enjoy and it allows you to know how to focus your energy. So let's say something like um, retaining customers, even over net new customers. Okay. So now we're not saying that either of those two things are bad, right? They are both good. We want new customers. We want customers to to keep working with our software company, but we're going to prioritize our energy into this zone versus this other zone. And what that does is allows you to know where you need to keep doing the reps and where you can loosen up a little bit as an organization. And now when I tell most people this, they're going to go, well, my team is just going to stop with net new. No, your team is ambitious. They either want to make more money because you have sales reps who are comped on, on net new sales or whatever the case might be. Uh, you you have, but what you need to do is understand how to focus your time. And and one of the things that I uh, talk a lot about with new leaders is you have to know where to give them the autonomy uh, or to put the water line so that they can you know iterate and be creative and do that within their space. And then where are you going to come in and really manage or or lead an area, right? And this is really about the vision and strategy of it. And what I found during COVID is people's strategies just went out the window. They didn't. They were like, well, people are, you know, I can't hold my team accountable because they're stressed out about COVID. So now are you saying that we'll let our team do whatever they want versus holding people accountable? If that's the case, then it should be clearly communicated to the team. I think that transparency is the key to really guiding us through anything like this pandemic. You know, like, you know, the amount of stuff that I've seen that's like how to have a Zoom call successfully or, you know, uh, who cares if I'm looking over here for a whole Zoom call, if everything I'm saying is right on, right? That's not that important for the the majority of people. Yet we don't really talk about how do you, in a time of stress, really focus in on what's going to move you forward and how are you going to prioritize what you're focused on? I think that that's a pandemic, like that's a that is, I don't mean to use the word pandemic, that's a epidemic that we had before the pandemic that the pandemic has only highlighted more clearly to me, which is we have no idea how to prioritize our time. So everyone feels stressed out. And now, you know, if you read the kind of studies that are coming out, people are even working less, you know, they're doing more side things because they're at home, you know, whatever, they're, they're more integrated with their family and people's fulfillment of their job is actually going up. And when people look at that and they go, well, you know, our profits down, our effectiveness down, the answer is no. No. So I would say, if anything, for a lot of business people, uh, the pandemic is could actually be a good thing um, from a perspective of understanding how to integrate these things and, you know, let your employee take off at 2 p.m. and, and spend time with their, you know, their husband and, and their son and then come back and work at 430 because they need that focus time. 
right? These are things that people are learning organically by not having the control. So in this case, I would say the pandemic has taught us effectiveness over uh, oversight, right? So if you're effective, much to your story that you started with, you know, I think that that person was leading with a pandemic mindset even way back then, um, which is, I don't care where you are or what you do. Here's where I am. Here's what I'm doing. I'm very clear about that. I'm committed to my schedule. Um, and, you know, as long as we're getting stuff done, things are going to be good with us. And, and I think those are the leaders who are going to emerge as the new executives after this is done or integrated into our existence, right? Which I, you know, I think it's we're more on the line of integration. In San Francisco, they built all these parklets everywhere um, so that restaurants can, you know, serve people on the outside. They're now permanent, right? They're not going to go away. And the reason is because the city is preparing itself for either this to continue on forever, which is not likely in, in with science, or for something like this to occur again and for us to not just, you know, disrupt our economy. And I really think that's, you know, where the future is going and what the leaders will look like when they emerge from this. A good friend of mine uses the phrase tragedy creates opportunity. And there have been many opportunities to do things differently and uh, with transparency and, and dialogue and communication with all the stakeholders, which in the end, will make places better for everybody involved. So, Jason, I've loved this conversation. Where can people find out more about you and all of this awesome work you do? You can check out Breadcrumbs if you need help uh, understanding the engagement of your customers at breadcrumbs.io. Or, and you can check me out at jasonreichel.com or on LinkedIn. I'm very active on there. And if you want more about the methodologies that I described today, it's eighthday.io. That's awesome. And I'll definitely have all that in the show notes. So Jason, thank you again for all this amazing work you're doing. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much, Michael. Thanks for listening to The Breakfast Leadership Show, part of the Breakfast Leadership Network. Visit breakfastleadership.com for tips on empowering your business and your life.